Why did the skeleton break up with her boyfriend before Valentine's Day? Her heart wasn't in it. Hi everyone, welcome back to Paranormal. It's your host, Nicolina Savelli, and I'm here all alone on this Valentine's Day recording this episode. Well, technically Galentine's Day, but Marie's shitting her brains out and can't come to record. So here we are. I am going to be serving up some Valentine's Day content for you guys, Um, some ghost stories that have some love and feeling involved. And yeah, I've never done an episode all alone, so bear with me. Uh, I've done some content alone, but this is this is a little bit different. There's no one to laugh at my jokes um, or pretend to find them funny. So yeah, here we are. I decided that I was going to start that with a knock-knock joke, and it felt really weird because no one laughed. Anyway, um, I'm going to read my horoscope for today. I'm going to read my love horoscope, and I'm going to tell you guys whether or not it rings true for me, because that's what I usually would do with Marie. So here we go. So Leo, as my listeners, our listeners know, I am a Leo. For my love horoscope today, it says, you may have to stop yourself from becoming overly intense in a certain romantic situation today. There is going to be a lot of emotion around. This is, a fi- this is fine if you are comfortable and happy in a current partnership, but it could become overpowering if you are still getting to know each other or if there are issues that need to be discussed. Well, luckily for me, I have been in a partnership for three and a half years. And um, right now, we just watched Deuce Bigelow, the male gigolo, and we had tacos. So, really hasn't been that intense. I mean, he's been home because he got surgery the other day and just recovering. And yeah, pretty good. So I'm glad I'm not at the beginning of a new relationship, not getting to know each other very comfortable. So not an issue for me. Thank goodness. So for this episode, I am, we usually do stories or have someone on. We had uh, Lauren on for our last Valentine's Day episode and she did some readings for listeners. We also have done episodes about people who have fallen in love fallen in love with ghosts. Um, I decided to just do a story about um, basically the loss of a loved one and them coming back and basically being part of their lives after they had met someone else. So um, without further ado, I'm going to read this story that was published in June 2015. And the title is This is the greatest love story and ghost story. When my husband died at 37, I needed a sign he was okay. I got it, but could my new love handle a real ghost story? And this was written um, and published by Leslie Petrizic, um, like I said, in in Salon, sorry, Salon Magazine. So the story goes, Steve, the man who would become my second husband, 
thought he had heard everything he needed to know about my first husband, Rob. That he had died at 37 unexpectedly of a heart attack. That we had met in college. That I had stayed in touch with his family. That we had been married 10 years. That the experience of his trying to teach me how to parallel park had so traumatized me that I remained phobic about parking. Steve understood that I had a history, a previous life. He had one too. He'd been divorced six years before meeting me. The two of us were on a weekend trip to Charleston, South Carolina, a city I had visited with Rob. I was trying not to push my memories of must-sees, but I envisioned Steve walking the promenade along the battery with me, admiring the antebellum mansions overlooking the water, our steps perfectly matched in a quintessentially romantic moment. We had taken a tour earlier in the day, and when the guide recommended a stroll along the promenade, I used his suggestion as the excuse for my own. The houses we passed were vast, boxy mansions, as lavish and as importantly grand as wedding cakes, with columns and pastel paint and porticos and wrought iron. Maybe it was how our tour guide's gossipy stories of past and present intertwined melodramatic deaths with mournful ghosts, having learned tourists tip better on ghost stories. Hand in hand, on a sunny afternoon, the houses swelling on one side of us as water sparkled on the other, with Fort Sumter on the horizon and dinner plans for shrimp and grits, I asked Steve, have you ever seen a ghost? He fumbled an answer, that he hadn't, but that he didn't necessarily believe in ghosts while also not disbelieving in them. Of course, he ping-ponged the question back, so have you seen a ghost? I knew it wasn't supposed to be a real question, just as I had surely known that once I asked him, he would ask me in return. Yes, I said. A pause. Yes, is that all? I want to say a cloud charged overhead, but the sky remained luminous and blue, or that a chill snaked up my spine, sending that shut-the-hell-up warning. I want to think that I reconsidered for half a second the story I was jumping in to tell because it wasn't the casual story pulled from my repertoire. I had a perfectly fine and safe story about a ghost, waking up one night to a green glowing presence in the bedroom, so forceful I thought someone had broken in. With embellishment, it's a good story when I spin it. Like the tour guide, I understood that people tip on ghosts. But the story I was going to tell wasn't safe, and it wasn't actually a ghost story. I didn't go around telling this story, not even after a couple of drinks, but I told it anyway, feverishly, perhaps unwisely, to my boyfriend. How after Rob died, the only thing I wanted was some sign of him. How I knew I'd survive this awful thing if I had one tiny sign. His face peering around the corner or his voice, just something, I said. I couldn't imagine that Rob wouldn't do that for me. But he died on a Sunday, I explained, and there was nothing when it happened. And then there were all these people around, and I was waiting and waiting, and still nothing, day after day. I was praying. This is when I was a practicing Catholic, I told Steve. So I would literally get on my knees, in church, at home, at the side of my bed, literally drop to my knees and beg God to let Rob give me a sign that he was okay. I mean whatever okay means in this context. 
This was where Steve found a convenient excuse to drop my hand. Itchy nose, lash in his eye. But I plowed ahead, telling him about a garish, purple fleece bathrobe that Rob had given me for Christmas because he was the hugest Northwestern Wildcats football fan in college. Their colors, purple and black. I wore that purple robe a million times. Washed it a million times, I said. And there was a white nightshirt of mine that Rob loved. Kind of Victorian with buttons and lace on the placket. My fingers trailed down my chest to show where a placket went. That, I'd also washed a million times. The week after Rob died, I wore it every night to think of him. I told Steve how exhausting that week was. Friends and family crowding around asking how I was. No sleep, waiting five days for the memorial service because our church was booked up. Five days was forever, I said. The morning of the funeral, I still hadn't had a sign. I paused, sucked in a breath. Steve was silent, so I pretended he was wrapped. After my shower, I went to the bedroom, hung up my robe, about to shove my nightgown in a drawer where I looked down and saw a jag splotch the size of a fist right where my heart would be. I looked at Steve. He was squinting because of the sun. He hadn't spoken or even murmured a half-hearted go on. That was my sign, what I'd been waiting for, that purple stain. I fell to my knees. I said, and I almost cried again as I told Steve how I was sobbing then, thanking God over and over. There was no way dye rubbed off on that robe that had been washed a million times. No way, I said quietly. God did that. Rob did that. Wherever he was, I knew he was okay. Steve spun around and began walking, fast off the promenade into town towards the hotel, to where the houses were only old, not old, and haunted. I hurried after him. You shouldn't have told me that, he said when I caught up. You asked if I'd seen a ghost, I said, a lame response. That story freaks me out. He folded his arms against his chest. I want to forget it. I want never to have heard it. No one hardly even knows that story, I said. I didn't tell anyone. Well, you shouldn't have told me. It's an amazing story, I said, my voice edging into anger. No, it's not, he insisted. It's unnatural. I want to say that we talked things through, talked until we understood why I felt compelled to tell that story and why he didn't want to hear it. I want to say that by the time we ate our shrimp and grits, that night we were laughing and holding hands but that wasn't exactly the case. I stopped telling that story until now. Even when I finally tiptoed into writing about my first husband's death, I couldn't bring myself to write that ghost story because that purple splotch remained on the white nightgown for years, and I continued wearing the bathrobe and nothing else ever stained. Some stories shouldn't be true yet are, and those are the stories our souls crave and fear. That's how much he loved me, is what I want for the tidy conclusion of this piece. But whether it's God or Rob, who is the he, I can understand that it may not be possible for Steve or for anyone else to be comfortable hearing my ghost story that way. I think we all have similar secret stories we don't share. Or maybe, and this is just as likely, maybe it's Steve who is the he, listening to this ghost story of mine, knowing more must lurk, and choosing to marry me anyway. Okay, I literally had to stop and just like cry after that. Um, so I 
<laughs> I don't want to leave it on that note because that was like so emotional and uh, I like to add a little bit more content to this episode. So I'm going to tell some tales of ghostly lovers and spooky soulmates from the Travel Channel by Ali Sangiolo. And uh, basically, it's just a collection of individual instances of love and ghosts. So let me just go into these and see what we have in store. So there is the story from the Longfellow's Wayside Inn. And Joshua Howe is said to still haunt the Massachusetts Inn that she lived and worked in. She fell in love with a British man who promised to return to America to marry her, but she died a single woman. She had patiently waited for 44 years, and she enjoys teasing the guests of the inn while she continues to wait for her long-lost love. Governor's Mansion. In 1984, a 19-year-old boy unalived himself in a bedroom of the governor's mansion. The woman he loved had refused his hand in marriage. For years, no one would sleep in the room because of the unexplainable banging sounds, and the room was sealed off sometime after the Civil War. In 1925, the boy's bedroom was opened up again, and people still report hearing muffled sobs coming from the room. Henderson State University A young boy from what was once a Methodist college fell in love with a girl from the nearby Baptist University. Friends convinced the boy to stop seeing the girl he loved because of their different religions, and he asked someone else to the homecoming dance. When his love found out he was taking someone else, she was so distraught that she unalived herself, and students call her the Black Lady. And every year during homecoming, she wanders the halls of the women's dorms at Henderson State University looking for the girl who stole her love from her. There's the Santa Clara house. A young married woman had an affair with a traveling salesman from San Francisco. When she found out she was pregnant with his child, she unalived herself in her attic. The former Victoria home is now a restaurant and customers have seen her wandering the upstairs ladies' bathroom and staring out the window, waiting for her lover to come back to her. This is getting very sad. I don't know if we're going to end on a positive note here. I'm sorry. Um, Chatham Manor, the lady in white, is said to wander along a path leading to the Rappahannock River, searching for her soulmate. Her father, an Englishman, brought her to the Chatham house in a desperate attempt to destroy her romance with the commoner. Her lover followed her to America, and the two planned to run away together. Their plans were discovered, the boy arrested, and the girl quickly taken back to England. The girl vowed to return to Chatham Manor to find the boy she loved. She was first seen wandering the path on June 21, 1790, the day she died and is rumored to return every seven years on the anniversary of her death. Emily's Bridge is another one. Legend has it that a girl named Emily was in love with a boy her parents didn't approve of. They arranged to meet at the Gold Brook Bridge to run away together. When he didn't show up, she took the rope that she had used to tie together her sack of belongings and unalived herself from the bridge. 
People have reported hearing banging, footsteps, a girl screaming, and ropes tightening. The Casablanca Inn. A widowed innkeeper fell in love with a rum runner during Prohibition who made his living smuggling alcohol to the U.S. on his boat. The innkeeper would keep watch on her roof, signaling with a lantern if it was not safe to come in from sea. On a stormy night, she saw federal agents patrolling and waved her lantern to warn her lover. She never saw him again. People still report seeing a woman standing on the roof waving a light back and forth. Don Caesar Hotel Thomas Rowe was studying in Europe when he fell in love with a woman named Lucinda. Lucinda's parents didn't approve of their relationship and forbid them to see each other. Rowe eventually returned to America and one day received a letter from Lucinda. On her deathbed, she had written, Time is infinite. I wait for you by our fountain. To share our timeless love, our destiny is time. When Rowe built the Don Caesar Hotel, he included a replica of their fountain. The lovers have been spotted holding hands and strolling by on many occasions. And finally, the 1790 Inn and Restaurant. A servant girl named Anna fell in love with a sailor while working at the inn. When he left, she couldn't stand the sight of his ship disappearing down the Savannah River and threw herself into the brick courtyard. Guests have spotted the broken-hearted Anna rocking in chairs, opening windows, and walking up and down the stairs, waiting for her sailor to return. So, that is a collection of starstruck and just bad endings to love stories. Um, and I apologize that that is how we are going to be ending this episode. But... um. Instead of doing a fuck, Mary kill for this episode, I will probably just post it on our Instagram for you guys to answer because I'm not going to ask myself um, a fuck, Mary kill. And I'll just do, uh, I'm going to do some rom-com heartthrobs for this one because it's Valentine's Day and it just makes sense. So on that note, that's showbiz, baby. And, uh, Everyone, I just want you all to stay spooky. Goodbye. This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. 